Well, this, whoa, that got low. This morning, I don't know. Uh, we're going to, like I said, finish, and I might finish on a chair. But I want to remind you that that doesn't mean you're not, that doesn't mean you're done. You have your books, right? So in your process and your progress of, of memorizing the cards in the back of the book, if you haven't finished that, keep going. The outline of these four quadrants and the headlines provided and the verses that go along with them are a wonderful way to have in your head and in your heart to always be able to start anywhere in the gospel story and with confidence complete it. So please memorize those, keep those, tear it out, laminate it, do what you want to do, keep it, keep it close to heart and mind. It's a great resource. Don't forget it. Don't leave it behind as we finish the class. Uh, you'll see, because this morning, as we talk about biblical guidelines for evangelism at work and discipleship, we're going to see in the discipleship portion why the gospel stays around forever. So keep it, keep it handy, keep it going. I wish we had time to pair up together to then share verses and practice together, but this morning, combining two lessons, unless I go super fast, which I have critiqued before, speaking too quickly, I'll try to slow it down, but uh, unless we finish early, we're not going to have time for that, but I wish we did. But you can practice on your own. It could be something fun to do uh, any time. So the theme today, if you're taking notes in your book, in your, in your lesson book or on your own, is that biblical evangelism is our God-given command and privilege It's our God-given command and privilege, and when people positively respond, we must disciple them. We must bring them along. We must fulfill the rest of the great commandment to teach them to observe all that Jesus has taught us, all that he's given us, all his commands. So that theme is biblical evangelism is our God-given command and privilege, which when people positively respond requires discipleship no matter where we work or where we live. So that's where we're going today. Is that... All right, maybe that was my phone just next to it. All right, all right, so we'll keep going. All right, excellent. So if you turn to chapter 7 in your, in your teaching or your, in, your, in your guide for Grace Evangelism and Training, that's where we're going, and we're going to do this in three key ways, right? So the first point we're going to make is we're going to talk about a biblical perspective of work which is set in the agenda in our minds. The second thing we're going to talk about is the biblical practice of evangelism at work. And then the third thing we're going to talk about is the biblical process of discipleship. So where we're going first is that biblical perspective of work in our minds. So to begin, work is a creation ordinance. Creation ordinance. Creation on purpose in front of that because sometimes... If you allow yourself to think about it, you can think about your work, you can think about your employment, you can think this can be hard at times and difficult. Certainly, work came as command after sin. Certainly, it came after that. It did not. Work came at the very beginning. So work, according to God, is a creation ordinance. Genesis 1.28 says that God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over every fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. He gave us that command to subdue and rule over creation. That's work. In Genesis chapter 2, 15, he continued that command. He said, Then the Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and to keep it. So there's work again, to cultivate it and to keep it. God gave us work before the fall. He gave us that in ordinance that we are going to work. And if you look at verses 16 and 17 on there, we work for a purpose. 
the Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. From the day that you eat from it, you will surely die. So in verses 16 and 17, you see that we have a command, a command to obey, which means that the purpose of our work is obedience. The purpose of our work is honoring God. That's why we do it. Yes, we get provision. Yes, we get other things from it. But the purpose of our work is to bring glory to God. So not only did God give us work, but he gave us purpose. Our goal is not simply to work, but it's to honor him in all that we do which is a battle each and every day for us to remember and each and every moment as we go through the ups and downs of our work lives and our careers to think and remember that. But the purpose of our work is to honor him in all that way we do. So the next thing, though, is that work is also a gift. And I might be just pushing too many to the side that, okay, work is good and work is a gift. I don't, some, some people's employment is really hard. And you might be saying, hold on a second. But in God's perspective, those are true. Work is a creation ordinance and work is also a gift. So how is it a gift? James 1.17 commands us and tells us and enlightens us. It says, every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. Every good thing given that God gives us. Work is good. He's given it to us. It's a gift. We have it. It's a gift to do good purposes. In verse 18, James continues and says, in the exercise of his will... He brought us forth by the word of truth so that we would be, and this is the key part I want you to see, a kind of first fruits among his creatures. Not only is work a gift because it's a means to provide, not only is work a gift because God has given it, not only is work a gift because it's an opportunity to then give back to the church and to give glory to God in all of our actions, but it's a gift because it's a platform for evangelism and ministry. When we think about evangelism, you think about where do you go to evangelize, When we think of missionaries, they have a mission field. They go to a place. We are also just the same. Our place just may not be far away. Our place may be, because we have pilots here, airplanes. Our place may be corporate offices. Our place may be people that do real estate transactions. Our place is our work. That's our mission field. It's a platform for evangelism and ministry. And sometimes for our people, it's at home. For our parents that that have kids at home, it's us too. That's our mission field with our children. There's lots of places that is our mission field. And lastly, work is a ministry, and the workplace is a mission field. In the past, there was a separation between what they called sanctified work and secular work, or holy work and secular work. And if we're we're not careful, we can trick ourselves into thinking the same things today. They would separate, oh, well, the church does those things, like ministry and taking care of people and gospel or evangelism. And we lay workers, we do our own thing and we go and they do all of it. That's an incorrect interpretation of what God's commands are. The only thing that's different between lay work and ministry work are the functions, the places you go, the types of appointments you have, and the types of conversations you may talk about in a general sense or a case of business. But God is always intended for the purpose of our work to glorify him and for us to have platforms for evangelism and ministry. And that can happen in any type of workplace. There's no separation between your type of work or someone else's type of work, whether it's church work or whether it's lay work. It doesn't, there's no separation there. I'll prove it to you. This is not a trick question. Who has placed you in your roles, in your work with the people around you? Keyword, sovereignly. 
Who has done that? God did that. Hey, so if God put you there for his purposes, then it's because you have a platform to evangelize him through the way we glorify him and how we speak about him. So there's no separation. We can't look at the church and say, hey, you handle those aspects, I'll handle those aspects, because that's not God's intention. So that finishes our first point, which is God's perspective on work, which needs to be our perspective on work, which the key takeaway there is that God's perspective on work is it's a place for us to honor and glorify him in a platform for our ministry. So let's look at the second thing we're going to talk about today, which is a biblical perspective of evangelism at work. So I've been thinking about this. This is us setting the stage in our hearts for us to think rightly about this. So as we go into there to begin, we need to recognize right off the bat that God is our ultimate employer. When I say that, God is our ultimate employer, what's your reaction to the reality that God is your sovereign ultimate employer? Help me out. What's, how, what did it immediately hit your brains? Doulos, which in Greek is you're a slave, which means what? Yeah, so you have, if you're employed, you have two masters. If God's your ultimate employer, then we're a slave to, to him. God, in righteousness, sets a standard. Yeah, thanks, Paul. What else? I heard something whispered on here. Yeah, we're definitely going to talk about that, Brandon. Do our work as unto the Lord and as unto, not as unto men. That standard, yeah. Yeah. There you go, Joseph. Yeah, the gratefulness and thankfulness. He's providing that work. Yeah. Lordship, contentment, because sometimes work is hard. Sometimes the examples and the situations that we're in are not what we consider ideal by any means, but it's work, and it's what is God currently providing to us, so contentment. He's our Lord. Galen? Mm. Yeah, the uh, the pay or the rewards of serving the Lord uh, way outshadow, right? And an, an inheritance of eternal rewards way outshadow the payment. Yeah, thank you very much. Yeah, y'all, that, those are the realities of having your ultimate employer. I thought of many of those same things, not all of them. So thank you for adding into them. I definitely thought of the provision part. You know, that he provides for us. He provides for us in our work. It's an opportunity like we talked about in our last point to glorify him. It's an opportunity to receive payments. It's an opportunity that we can use those resources that God's given us to serve others, to provide for our family, to provide for the church, all of those things, right? But we also need not fear our positions at work because God is our ultimate employer. And we're talking about evangelism at work, which some of you may already be connecting the dot that says, hey, if I start evangelizing at work, does it put my job at jeopardy? Right? Do I, what, how do I handle that? And this should be comfort to us that God is our ultimate employer. Do I know that if something were to happen that you share the gospel and unfortunately the outcome was you lost your job where God would put you next? I do not know that. I do know that God is our ultimate employer and he will provide. Right? And we can, and this, we are following his commands. So we need not fear for our, our ability to provide for our family. I have a couple of verses for the purpose of our work, which we touched on. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 7 to 8, tells us our purpose in our work. It says, With good will render service as to the Lord and not to men, 
knowing that whatever good thing each one does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether slave or free. The Lord is our standard. We serve him, not just a man or a woman or a, uh, an employer. Colossians 3.24 says, Knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance, it is the Lord Christ whom you serve. So we serve our ultimate employer. He's our standard. He sets the bar. And his bar is perfection. His bar is reaching beyond what anybody's asking for you from an empl- earthly employer perspective to work. We're going to talk about that. So we, what about this interaction with our earthly employers? The next thing we're going to talk about is we honor and obey our earthly employers. Why? Because God commands us to. We treat each employer this way. 1 Timothy 6, 1-2 says that all who are under the yoke as slaves are to regard their own masters as worthy of all honor so that the name of God and our doctrine will not be spoken against. There's a lot in those two verses. All who are under the yoke, you're employed, okay? Everyone who's employed are to regard their masters as worthy of all honor. There's, do you see a caveat that says, if they're nice to you? Is there a parenthesis that says, well, if they're, you know, they, they treat you well? No, it's not there. It's not there because that is not what God's commanded us to do. God commands us that we treat them with all honor so that the name of God and our doctrine will not be spoken against. Because if we acted that says, well, then if my employer's bad, then I'm going to be bad, we can be spoken against. God's name can be spoken against. We don't do that. He says, hold them as worthy of all honor. So, question, how do we go about honoring our employers? I'm just curious. What do we, how, do you go, how do you go about honoring your employer? Say it again. An excellent job. Yes. Oh, yeah, not bad-mouthing them. That's a temptation. The, if you're, you've been in a meeting, and someone has given you an assignment, and it's not an assignment you want, and everybody around the table or on the Zoom screens today also agree that that is a bad assignment. No one wants this. And everybody's going, grr, 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 grr. And you can see that coming, and it's your turn. You have a choice. You, we can jump in, which we're tempted to, or we can consider our employer worthy of all honor and act differently. Yeah, we can. I thought of, I thought of this too, the quality of our work, the attitude that we have in our work, the way we serve our employer, like not just work for them. Hey, I, I, I punched it. I left, but we serve them looking for ways beyond what's asked of us to serve them. The way we inquire about them, the way we talk about our coworkers, with our coworkers, how we inquire to know them, how we get their interests, how we care to love them. All of those things are ways that we can serve our employer in a way that honors the Lord where there's no complaint that can be brought against you. The only exception to serving your earthly employer is if they ever ask you to do something against God's law. That's the only exception to that rule. Other than that, we serve with excellent attitudes, with excellent effort, making great use of our time, all of those things as an excellent employee. Because the next thing we look at when we share our gospel, the biblical perspective of evangelism and work is we're honoring Christ with our example. That's where we're going. We're honoring Christ with our example. Which there's a slide, I think, somewhere there. But there's, we're honoring Christ with our example. It's in your books. I want to bring up a concept called reputational risk. Has anybody heard of reputational risk? A few people are nodding their heads. Reputational risk is the idea of what is your reputation, not when people are looking eyeball to eyeball to you, but after you've left the room. What's still there? 
What's the memory? What's the impression they have of you? Whether you just left the room, whether you worked with someone for a week on a project and then you left them, whether you worked for years with someone and then you moved on or you changed employers entirely. What is the reputation you left there? The risk is that it could be a bad one, right? What's, what is that? What is that reputational risk? So we looked at 1 Timothy 6.1. It's not on the slide. We read it earlier, but I'll read it again. The risk is, at the end of that verse, is it says, the worthy of all honors so that the name of God and our doctrine will not be spoken against. It won't be blasphemed. He's super quick with the slides. It won't be blasphemed. Thank you. Because um, we're not spoken against. That's the risk, is if our reputation at work is not one of excellence, not one that we described earlier, then we're allowing for God's name to be spoken against. We're allowing for our witness, our testimony of being a Christian to be spoken against. And that is not how we honor Christ with our example. We do it by the standard of our work. 1 Corinthians 10.31 says that whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, you do all to the glory of God. All to the glory of God. And this is a convicting statement for all of us. As we walk into any situation, can we, with discipline, think, I want to glorify God in this situation. Maybe it's as you drive to work, as you're starting your shift. Maybe it's in the middle of your shift. Maybe it's every meeting. Maybe it's every new new person you're going to try to bring on. If you're an employer, you're going to bring on employees, whoever, whatever it is. Are, you, are we thinking, I want to glorify God in what I'm about to do here? And in the broader context of, of serving our employer, this is Colossians 3, 22 to 25. It says, slaves, in all things, obey those who are your masters on earth, not with external service as those who merely please men, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It's the Lord Christ whom you serve. For he who does wrong will receive the consequences of the wrong which he has done, and that without partiality. We need to be obedient to our employers. So think, how do I handle those assignments? What about the ones that I like? What about the ones that I don't like? Do I treat them differently? Do I operate differently? Because like, oh, I love that one. I'm all in. Let's go, boss. And that one, not so much. I'll work on it in a few weeks. We, we obey and we operate consistently to that high standard of God as our ultimate employer. Are we sincere in our heart? Are we fearing the Lord? Are we working heartily as to him? Right? Um, remember, God's the one who rewards and delivers the consequences. He's our ultimate employer in this. As we think about living as we honor Christ with our work example, he is at the top of the list. We serve in the end the Lord Christ. And uh, there's a proverb, Proverbs 22, 29, that is really cool when it thinks about my opportunities to evangelize at work. It says, do you see a man skilled in his labor? He will stand before kings. He will not stand before obscure men. When we do our best work, it's noticed. Now, I don't know if you'll stand before kings, right? Proverbs, general principles for the wisdom of life. I do know, and we all have experienced it, when we do our best work to the standard that God has set for us, it is noticed. Sometimes it's noticed because we get recognized, and that's great. Sometimes it's noticed because peers are going, hey, you're really crushing it. And okay, that feels good too, some accolades. Sometimes it's noticed because people grind their teeth at us because like, hey, you're making us look bad. Okay, that could happen too. But either way, it's noticed, which means it gives us an opportunity to have a platform for evangelism and ministry in our workplace because it was noticed. 
right? So think about this. What happens when our reputation at work is not one of excellence? What happens? We do not have an excellent reputation. That's a question for you all. Okay, so we're not living up to the expectation of the role. If we're exploited in the name of Christ, and if you're sharing the gospel as an employee that says, hey, this is how you should live, and you get fired for not living up to the expectations of the workplace, that doesn't work. That tarnishes the word and doctrine and name of God. What happens when you live up to the reputation that God expects us to have? When we are excellent, what happens then? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Completely, Joseph. They'll see the difference. It's palpable. It's noticeable. They'll feel it, right? They'll, they'll ask you about it, or there'll be opportunities for you to talk about it. So that's why we're next we're going to talk about be tactful and looking for evangelism opportunities. If we have that excellent reputation at work, if our if we are depending on the Lord as the one who provides our living and sets the standard for our work life and our family life and our every life, we will have opportunities to evangelize at work. We were just talking about this, but Matthew 5, 14 to 16 tells us why we'll have opportunities. It says, Jesus says this, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. They will see it, and they'll ask you about it. Maybe it's because of how you serve your fellow co-workers. Maybe it's how you interact with the people at the workplace. Matthew twenty-two thirty-nine. this is the two greatest commandments. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And when you love someone like that, it leaves an impression. When you serve someone, you sacrifice for someone else, and they're not your family. They don't see a logical connection of why you would. It's going to leave an impression. It's going to co- prompt them to talk to you about it, potentially. And that's what we're talking about. So how do we go about these tactful opportunities? How do we approach it? What's our mental mindset supposed to be? Jesus tells us this in Matthew chapter 10, verse 16. He says, Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves. So we'll take that apart in the two places he gave us. Be shrewd as serpents first, and then we'll talk about innocent as doves second. So as shrewd as serpents, that word shrewd means wise, intelligent, sensible. So if you're wise and intelligent and you're sensible, and as you're going about your work, and you're looking for these opportunities that you can be an evangelist at work, then first you should pray. You should pray and be constantly in prayer about those opportunities. Colossians chapter 4.2 says, devote yourselves to prayer, keep an alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving. Be devoted to prayer. Be looking for those opportunities. Try to find people that you can care about, how you can serve your employer. And we also want to speak of God in the workplace anytime we can. So how do we do this as shrewd opportunity takers? How do you speak of God in the workplace in a way that is not obnoxious, and, and, but flows into everything you're doing and, and also proves why you are the way you are. How do you do that? Here's a couple of ideas. Every Monday, there's a question that's asked of you. Every single Monday. It's going to happen. I can nearly guarantee it. I can't predict the future, but I can nearly guarantee this question. How was your weekend? It's coming like a freight train. It's running right at you. It's like, yeah, they're going, hey, how was your weekend? What'd you do? Oh, we did this. It's coming. 
What do we do on weekends? We go to church and we sit in here and we learn and we something hits us. Something from God's word says, oh, I changed my life. I wasn't thinking about that. I am renewed in my conviction upon God's word about that or about this or about another thing. Yeah, we fellowship with someone. Someone says, hey, I could really need help with that. And you're able to step in and be the body of Christ and serve that person. It left a big mark on you. Someone served you that way over that weekend. All of those things can happen. Now, of course, you do your other things. You, you know, you went to a, uh, I just looked at Clint. So you went to a rodeo or you, you know, you, you did whatever you're going to do, right? So, okay, you, you have those things and talk about those things too. But you also have an evangelism platform right there. They ask, hey, would you, how was your weekend? It was great. I learned this at church. It was great. I was convicted by God's word about this. And I'm going to go do these other things about it. It's an opportunity right there. Another one, if you're working up to God's standard, you're going to get the question, why do you do that? It's going to come in different forms and fashions, different mediums, but it's going to happen. Sometimes it's going to be coworkers going, hey, you work awfully hard. Why? And it, the temptation is to give a surface answer. We all know that. It's like, well, if I work hard, I can provide my family. Like Those are true, and you should provide those. Be honest. But the real answer also above that is that because I serve an ultimate employer, and my ultimate employer says, this is how you should work. His name is God. And you can then get into a platform of evangelism just right there. Because they ask, why do you do the things you do? Why do you work that way? Sometimes it's not a coworker. Sometimes it's recognition. Your work says, hey, we're going to laud you because of the efforts you've been putting forth. And you have an opportunity right there. In my work, we do a lot of leadership development. And they ask questions like, what's your purpose? Giant questions. Right? What's your purpose? And so you look at that and you go, and a lot of people can answer things. Well, and you're like, well, hey, well, what were your experiences in life that led you to work the way you are? I mean, it's just begging to be gospel opportunities. It's begging for it. Right? Uh, sometimes we work in a way that there's a schedule that you need to meet. So what's your schedule availability can provide an opportunity? You know? And so they're going to say, hey, can you work Sunday? And so you can think, and you, you pray, and you make a decision, and sometimes you make decisions left or right, say, I have to work that Sunday because, and okay, I understand that. But generally, we want to be at church on Sunday. And so you can have an opportunity to converse with your employer or your scheduler about that. And you work that through. Because why would you want to not work on Sunday? What's a Sunday to you? It's an opportunity to show our love for Christ. In this time of year, there's also another question that shows up called, what are you thankful for? It's a wonderful question. You know, and lots of people like to share what they're grateful for, and gratitude comes out, and all kinds of different examples and shapes and sizes. But it's an opportunity to pla as a platform that we have. Those are just a few examples of how we can speak about God in the workplace. It's, they're, they're ample ones. As shrewd opportunity takers, we also want to ask the open-ended questions of others, especially about their views. When they're sharing what they're grateful for, if they have a different system of a belief or a system of no belief, I guess which is just a different system of belief, right? Then they're talking about what they do, their traditions. Oh, tell me more about that. How'd you grow up? What are the sources or values that you have that lead you to live the way you live? You'll ask those big open questions. And what happens next? There's a better than 50-50 shot that they go, what about you? And they ask you about yours. So if we lead into and ask and care about the interests and values and systems of others, they will respond a lot and say, well, what about you? We need to also be actively interested in the events of their lives. 
when they talk about what happened on their weekend, it's not just, hey, I'm waiting till you ask me about mine because I got this whole big awesome verse thing that I'm going to lay down on you, you know, uh, which you should be prepared and that's good. But, but we want to be interested in their lives. And when you show that interest and that love to them, when you love someone like you love yourself, you love someone sacrificially like Jesus would love them, they notice. And it's an opportunity to share the gospel. It's an opportunity to evangelize and be a minister to them. And look for opportunities to bring God's word to bear on a conversation. Even if it's not like I've described before, you have conversations. And I'm thankful when Craig taught his lesson, he shared how lots of people would come to his office and at different times they would, you see someone hurting and you know they just need help. They just need care. Or they come to you and go, hey, I know you're a Christian. Can you help me with this? Right? Whatever it is, there are opportunities that we could lead with God's word. We think it. And we think, well, I know the right principle to apply. I don't want to put God's word out there because maybe I would offend them. Just reverse that and do what we always need to do as God is our ultimate employer and God is our ultimate standard and go, I'm going to lead with God's word. And you can say, hey, you know what? I, uh, whatever the situation is, you can love them, bring God's word to their life and why you bring God's word to their life and help them. So you can always speak about God's word proactively when someone asks you for counsel. And of course, then the quality of our speech at work, we talked about, or it came out earlier, that if we're in the workplace and we're jumping on the complaint train, we are diminishing our ministry. We are tarnishing the name of Christ. And so the way we speak, whether it's how we treat others and how we speak about others, whether it's avoiding gossip, whether it's avoiding complaining, it's avoiding you know, um, speaking poorly about upper management or whatever the case is, or your situation in life, if we avoid that and we speak the way God wants us to speak, that are words filled with edification, that benefit other people, that are good for the moment, if we speak that way, then it's an opportunity to minister and to evangelize. People are going to notice. In today's culture, it's highly likely that someone will also probably complain about you sharing the gospel, sharing God's word in the workplace. It's highly likely that will take place. And we have to remember that God is our ultimate employer. If you're going to be fired for anything, Standing for the truth of the word of God is the best reason to be fired and probably should be the only reason we should be fired unless things are broken, which it's in a broken world, so that could happen. But if we're going to be fired for anything, it should be for standing for the truth of God's word. But we don't need to fear it because remember, God's your ultimate employer and he will provide for us. He's put the body of Christ around us to keep us going. That wraps up our second point, which was the biblical practice of evangelizing at work. No, it does. Um, the biblical process of discipleship is our third. So this happens when one of your folks you've been responding, you've been sharing the gospel with, and it's chapter eight in your books, just keep flipping. Uh, this, is, this is when someone, someone responds to the gospel. Someone then, God reaches into their heart, they've repented and they've believed, and he changes them, gives them a fresh heart, a new heart, and they're sitting there going, now what? Now what do I do? And this is the process that we take them through. So we want to think about this. For every believer, as Jesus saves them, he gives them the command. In John 1.43, it's two words. Follow me. That's what he said to Philip on the way to Galilee. In Matthew 4.19, he said to them, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. Follow me. This idea of discipleship, this command is not an invitation. It's not an option. It's not, hey, when you've got some time, let's meet. It's not, hey, when, you're, when you think you're available, let's go ahead and do that. This is an opportunity. Oh, thank you. 
service. This is an opportunity for us to to uh, to bring someone along to grow in the knowledge of Christ, to grow in how do they live before Christ, how do they pursue Christ's righteousness, how do they do that? It's not an option in Jesus' eyes, and it shouldn't be an option in ours. So what's this idea of discipleship? How do we summarize that? Simply put, it's becoming more like Christ or mimicking him, patterning our way of living on the standard that Christ has set for us. And we do this in two major ways. We instruct people in the scriptures, and we mentor people through the experiences in life as we are coming alongside them. We instruct people in the scriptures, and we mentor them as we come alongside people in their experiences. Scripture has tons of examples of how to disciple people or what discipleship looks like. I'm just going to use one. It comes from Proverbs chapter 4, verses 1 to 5. It says, Hear, O sons, the instruction of a father, and give attention that you may gain understanding. For I give you sound teaching. Do not abandon my instruction. When I was a son to my father, tender and the only son in the sight of my mother, then he taught me and said to me, Let your heart hold fast my words. Keep my commandments and live. Acquire wisdom. Acquire understanding. Do not forget nor turn away from the words of my mouth. Proverbs 1 through 7 all have that similar refrain refrain as they start. Hear my wisdom. Listen to my wisdom. Give attention to my wisdom. Keep my instruction. It's this idea of helping someone come along and knowing what it is to obey God according to his word. That is discipleship. Jesus says it this way in Luke 9.23. He said to them all, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. Stick right there, close to me, right on my heels. Go there. Because instruction without application can lead to arrogance. I know a lot, and so I must be good. But the inverse of application without instruction can lead to a whole bunch of activity that you don't know why you're doing it. So you're just doing a lot of stuff, and now you're back to self-justification. So it must be paired, instruction in the scriptures and application. So how do we disciple? We instruct people in the scriptures. We start with a thorough review of the gospel. We start with a thorough review of the gospel. Why would we start with a thorough review of the gospel to someone that just repented and believed? So they have a better complete picture. Yeah. Yeah. Is it possible that someone heard a slimmer gospel and they don't have all the pictures and they responded because God is awesome and still changed their heart because his word went forth and accomplished what it does? Yeah. We've all experienced that. No one goes, boom, gospel, and you have this moment like, I understand the Bible. I got it. We might wish for that sometimes, but then we wouldn't glorify God as much in the process. So that's we, we don't. Right? So yeah, we want to bring them along. So a new believer, we expand the gospel for them. We make sure that when they can look at the scriptures, they can see who Christ is and we show them. When they look at the scriptures, they can see about repentance as a way of life. When they look at the scriptures, we show them in scriptures about forgiveness and what that looks like and how that applies to themselves before them and the Lord and how that applies to the people in their lives. They are now very different. And we show them what sanctification is in that process. We show them what Christ's likeness is as a pursuit. They don't know unless someone tells them, unless someone shows them in God's word. And remember, we don't go beyond the gospel or leave it behind because the danger of that is that you just lost the power of everything that you're doing, right? The power that we can operate in a way that pleases God starts every single day, every single moment because we remember that before God, I was dead. 
And without God in my, in my life, I would still be dead. And that's then the power I have to then follow suit and obey God because he has saved me, given me a new life, and given me the Holy Spirit inside of me that I can walk before him. You remember that, and we can, we can obey. We can walk blamelessly before the Lord. The gospel is our forever resource as we live dead to sin and alive to Christ in all areas of our life. Romans 6, 11 to 14 is on the screen. And it says, even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of, I think I skipped one, verse 12. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. But present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be master over you. You are not under law, but under grace. We can go there every single moment of every single day. I'm seeing the smiles in the room because you're like, that is right. That is every day. And we should never leave the gospel behind because that's the power. That's our forever resource. But as we instruct people in the scriptures, not only do we do a thorough review of the gospel, but we also show them basic Bible study methods. How do you study the Bible? How do you find the answers? How do you go about this? The goal is to help them grow in their knowledge, yes, but it's really to help them grow in their ability to find it themselves because you may not always be in their life, right? Remember Philip the evangelist and the Ethiopian eunuch? He was not always there for him. Quite honestly, I baptized you and then the Spirit took me to a a city that I can't remember the name of, but it was not with you in the chariot, right? So who knows how long you'll be there? God will provide people for that believer, but as long as we're there, we need to help him grow. So examples that you could do that. You can take them through a book study. You can take them through 1 John, which shows them the tests of eternal life. You can take them through John, which shows them who Christ is as the Son of God. You can take them through Philippians, shorter book, basic Christian living. You can show them this is what it's like to live as a believer. You can take them through Romans, longer book. But this is the gospel of God to the entire world. This is it. This is his treatise on how he is saving people. You can also take them through a character study, like, say, Galatians 5. Galatians 5, we see the fruits of the Spirit and the fruits of the flesh, and you see them opposed to each other, and you can take them through that. A believer looks like this, and you have conversations of where in your world, where in your life are you still looking like the old person versus the fruits of the Spirit? Let's talk about that. How do you walk by the Spirit? You can take them through Matthew 5, through the Beatitudes. You can take yourselves through all of these, by the way, too, and it's an awesome study, and you'll benefit from it, and you could take them through those places. Remember, the objective is show that new Christian how to study the Bible. They come to you with a question about worry or anxiety. You could tell them the six, seven, twenty-seven things you know about from Scripture, how to battle anxiety, or you can send it to Matthew chapter 6, verses 25 and following and say, what did you see? Study that. What did you see about Jesus' teaching on how do you handle worry? Which is the method that we would, that's discipleship. But there's a warning there. It's easy when you're in these conversations. It's tempting that someone asks you, they go, they ask you questions like, hey, well, how did you handle this when? That's coming. And the answer you're going to want to give is, well, my experience is. Because that's what they teed you up for. They weren't trying to trick you, but it's just how it is. Human experience is shared, and we learn from those things. I'm not saying human experience isn't bad. I'm just saying human experiences are not authoritative. God's word is authoritative. So always start with God's word. Always start there. If you have an experience story or you know of an experience story or there's a book about an experience story that would be helpful, then great. That's awesome. Use it. But always start with God's 
word. It's God's word that's authoritative. John 17, 17 says, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Our goal is to be made more like Christ according to his word. That's what we're after. And Proverbs 3, 5 to 7 backs me up on why do we not start with our experiences because it says, trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. That's where we need to be going. We start with God's word as we disciple and we always go there. And your experiences are helpful. I'm not diminishing that. I'm just saying they're not authoritative. Be careful not to jump and reverse those things. That's instructing people through the scriptures. The next thing we're going to look at as we disciple is mentoring people through those experiences. So when we look at that, we need to have a daily pattern of scripture reading and prayer. A daily pattern of scripture reading and prayer. So what is so important about a daily habit of scripture reading? It's a question for you all. What's so important about that? There's not a one-word answer. It keeps our focus on the Lord. Good. What else? Yeah, we're fallen. We sin. We get off track. We need to see God's word, be convicted of sin, repent, get back on track. We can't do that aside from God's word. Okay. Yeah. Starts us off the right mindset. You wake up, all kinds of thoughts start running through your head instantly. Because we're fallen creatures, not all of them are God's word. So, but when we start purposefully, and is a daily habit, does that mean once a day? It's not like a vitamin, all right? Once a day vitamins is a marketing scheme. It's not a God's reading scheme, right? It's, it's a whenever, it's all the time, you know, whenever you need it. But yes, daily habit, you're in the word. What about prayer? A daily re- Why are we daily in prayer? Dependence on God, because we are fallen creatures. Thanks, Brandon. Why else? Yeah, it sets our will underneath God's will. Yeah. Because if you're praying scripture to God and you're thinking about what you're praying, you're going to end up going, you are right, and I was not. And it does exactly what you just said. Thanks, Heather. Yeah, it gives us these habits it's what we want to do. Psalm 119, 9 to 11 says, How can a young man keep his way pure? By keeping it according to your word. With all my heart I have sought you. Do not let me wander from your commandments. Your word I have treasured in my heart that I may not sin against you. That's why we're daily in the word. Because that's how we don't sin against God. That's how we don't wander from his commandments. That's how we keep our way pure. That's why we are in God's word. Because it tells us those things. Our daily pattern of prayer, just like Heather mentioned, 1 Peter 5, 6-7 says, Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety on him, because he cares for you. Humble yourselves before the mighty hand of God. We have a mighty hand of God that is caring for us, that we need to come underneath, because how ridiculous is it to go, no, no, I'm going to go my own way. But we do that. Sin pulls us that direction. But if a daily pattern of prayer is there, then we're going to resubmit and resubmit and resubmit. And again, the once a day thing applies to prayer just as much as it applies to Bible reading. It's not a once a day thing. It's in all the time we can think about it, everything we can bring to mind, which is why God, God wants us to memorize his word and hide it in our heart because you may not be able to pull your Bible out, Bible out in that moment. We have the patterns that we need and a new believer needs them too. 
But next, we also use ordinary events as opportunities to disciple. There's going to be plenty of ordinary events in a new believer's life. One that was living in a pattern of sin is now changed and are walking in the opposite direction. There are going to be ample opportunities for them to go, I don't know how to handle this one. I don't know how to handle my relationships. I don't know how to handle my work. I don't know how to handle my behaviors. I don't handle my daily patterns of life that I was used to. There's ample opportunities to bring this new believer back to God's word as they face repentance and they face living repentant lives. In Acts chapter 26, verses 19 to 20, Paul says this. I'm just going to read the last line. He says, everywhere he went, he called them to, quote, repent and turn to God, performing deeds appropriate to repentance. Performing deeds appropriate to repentance. That's what he was calling people that responded to God's word to do. Because when you repent, your life changes. And you, it doesn't mean your old habits just go, and you're given a whole set of new habits. It takes, no, you have all those old habits staring right back at you and say, now what? And so a new believer needs our help to show them in God's word how they can walk and do deeds that are appropriate to their repentance. We need to help the new believer apply God's truth in their hearts and their daily lives. Lastly, as we disciple someone, we need to exemplify love for the church. Don't just leave them where they are. If this is a close relationship, bring them into the church body. Show them the body of Christ. Show them what the love of Christ looks like. Show them fellowship. Show them worship. Show them how your local church can minister to them. Show them the baptism class because they need to be baptized. Show them how they can come into the church and see other people relate to each other sacrificially. Show them the body of Christ. Get them involved in small groups. It's not because I'm over small groups. It's because it's right. Get them involved in small groups. Get them involved in daily Bible study. If there's a Saturday morning study, hook them into it. There's a men's study over there. Get them in it. A women's study over there. Make that happen. They need to know. They need to be a part of the body and experience that. If they're not a close relationship, get on 9marks.org. Get on uh, the Master Seminary Church Finder website. That's not the name of it. I just can't tell you the name of it, but it's there. Get on there and find a local church. It's a good one. Help them research a local church. Show them in God's word what a local church looks like out of Acts chapter 2 through 5 and show them that and then say that's what you look like. That's what you look for. Help them. Help them get plugged into the body of Christ. It's a lot to combine two chapters together, but we did it. So let me summarize for us. Chapters 7 and 8 were about three things. First, we looked at the biblical perspective of work. The key takeaway there is God is your ultimate employer. He's my ultimate employer. We live to his standards. We live to serve him. The second thing we looked at was that we have a biblical practice of evangelism at work. The key takeaway is that when we live to the reputation that God's standard will cause for us, we will have opportunities to share. Take them. And the last thing we talked about was the biblical practice of discipleship. And when we look at that, we look at the key takeaway there is that every new believer needs to be shown how I study the Bible, how I obey, and they need to show the body of Christ. They need to have a local church. So do what you can to bring them along in those things. So, y'all, that brings our study of uh, evangelism to an end. Does that mean evangelism is coming to an end? No, it does not mean that. It means that we graduate. There's no hat ceremony, either, but you have been equipped. Right? What this means is that we know and we have an awesome resource from these cards to do exactly what God wants us to do. He wants us to obey the command and the privilege he's given us to be evangelists. Matthew 28, 19 to 20 says, Go therefore and make disciples. 
of all the nations, because it was just out of my head, baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all the commandments that I've given you. And behold, I'm with you, even to the end of the age. I know I got the rest wrong. Um, but he gave us that command to do that. And in 2 Corinthians 5, 18 to 20, he says this, not only is it a command, but it's a privilege. He says, now all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Did you give that? Gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Namely, that God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, here it is, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. We have a command and a privilege to take God's word into the world, wherever it is, whether it's a workplace or a home place or a mission field far away, whatever it is, we have those things. So I have four points of application of what do we do next? What do we do coming out of this? Number one, we pray for the opportunities that we have. You've been praying this whole time for names. Keep praying for those people. Take those opportunities. Pray for more people that come to mind when you think, I want them to hear the gospel. Engage in those opportunities. Those people you've been praying for. Continue to rehearse and practice the gospel, the transition statements, those questions. Those You may not like, man, that scenario comes up, I never know what to say. Well, okay, don't just sit there never knowing what to say. Practice it and figure it out so that you can know what to say and how you want to handle it. And then lastly, be faithful. We've been equipped. Now we go do the work of service. I need to plug a fifth one that I just remembered. For those of you that want to be certified as evangelism trained to then go out with Northlake and take people with you evangelizing, you can come to the certification. Chris, what date is that? 20-something. 20, 20, 20 well, Hit the church office, staff at northlakebible.org if you want to be a part of that, and then we'll get that. Did we get the answer? 23rd, January 23rd, there's a certification process you can go through where you can be part of a ministry at Northlake going out and evangelizing if you want to do that. All right, let me pray, and we'll close. Lord, you are wonderful. You are great. You are awesome. And as we talk about you and your word, we get excited. And uh, Lord, we talked about a daily habit of being in your word and a daily habit of interacting with you because that is what causes and prompts and propels us to follow after you in obedience. In obedience, Lord, we love you. Lord, we pray this morning that you would embolden and impassion our hearts to love you all the more because of our study of your word and to then take your word and take your truth and take that love that you have given us first while we were yet sinners and take that message to the world. Lord, help us to be passionate ambassadors for your son, Jesus Christ, to be reconcilers and participating in, that, participating in that ministry of reconciliation between you and the world through the beautiful message of your word, the gospel. I pray this thing in Jesus' name. Amen.